0: I hope you're in Titus 3. We're going to do our best to get through this and get us out of here on time. I I was uh listening to Moody Radio the other day and there was a couple on there. Their names were Scott and Karen Melby. And their story uh grabbed me knowing that we're here in Titus 3 and they were sharing their their testimony of Scott was diagnosed with leukemia, and they were telling the story of his walk through that battle, and uh, I thought, man, that is a, just listening to it is a clear picture of the gospel, and, and I want to I wanna use that illustration from that story and to kind of open up this passage and help us to see it on the front end. We're going to look at the Word of God and kind of dissect it and then we'll bring it home to close on, on the back end. But the husband, his name was Scott, he was diagnosed uh, with with leukemia. And if you know anything about leukemia, in order to cure that, in order to the cure the kind of leukemia that he had, he needed a blood transfusion. He needed a, a bone marrow uh, transplant in, in order to, to cure that. And obviously the first... Uh, uh, people that they test when they're looking for that are, are siblings or children and things like that. And his sister, they tested his siblings and, and his sister was a perfect 10 match. There are some markers that enable, that tell the doctors whether this person's bone marrow would be likely to, to be received well by the person with leukemia. And, and his sister uh, was a perfect 10 and they told the story of prior to the transplant, they 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 treated him with, with chemotherapy and that, and they basically destroyed his system. They took him as close to the brink of death as they could possibly take him. The, the wife was telling the story of how she remembered watching her husband sign a form that says, look, if this doesn't work, you will die. If your body does not receive her bone marrow, you will die. Now, now you're probably, he, he knew he was going to die one way or the other. It was just doing this. If it didn't work, it would be much quicker. And, and, he, and he, she told of him, him signing that piece of paper saying, look, his system was contaminated, and they would used that chemo to destroy his immune system, to destroy his cells, and they took him as close to the brink of death, and they gave him his sister's bone marrow. And many weeks went by, and the wife was telling of how she kept asking the doctors, how will we know if it worked? How will we know if it worked? She said, hey, the doctor told of a test. It was called a chimerism test. And he said, we're going to test his blood, and that chimerism test is going to tell us if how well his body has received the transplant and they're looking for a hundred percent engraftment and here's the cool thing here's what struck me the doctors said when we run that test we're going to run that test on your husband Scott but you know what we want to see we want to see your his sister's blood in him we don't want to see any trace of Scott's blood when we run this test, what we're looking for, how we'll know if it worked, is when we run this test on Scott, we're going to see, I think her name was Dawn, we're going to see Dawn's blood. They said they ran the test, and by the grace of God, the test came back 100% engraftment. Here's the cool thing. If you were to test Scott's DNA, if you were to test his blood for DNA after that engraftment, you know what would have come back? it would have came back and said, he's Dawn, But he's really Scott. Now if you took a swab from his cheek and tested that DNA, they said it would show that he was Scott. But if you tested his blood, he was Dawn. Dawn's blood, her healthy, clean blood, lived in Scott. And it gave him life. It gave him life. She told her the story how certainly after the procedure, they were standing in the the kitchen, the family was all there, and as it was, the family left, and it was just Scott, his wife Karen, and his sister Dawn in the kitchen. He said he grabbed her hand and said, Thank you. You saved my life. You saved my life. He was given life, through somebody else's donated bone marrow, a transplant, a transfusion. What, what do you suppose a reasonable expectation for his life would be from this point forward? What do you suppose a reasonable response would have been from Scott to his sister Dawn for going through that on his behalf? Gratitude, gratefulness. A purpose-filled life, a very focused life. He was dead. He was dead, and he was given life. That—that's salvation. That is a physical, visible picture of what Paul is teaching us, and he was teaching Titus and the church at Crete in that day. That's salvation. See, we were all sick. Every single person in this room was sick with a, with, a, with a deadly disease. It wasn't leukemia, though. It was sin. And we couldn't cure it on our own. We were dead. Ephesians 2.1 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sin. Look, look what Paul says here in, in, in verse 3. He says, For we were once foolish disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That's the fruit of sin. That's the fruit of the flesh. But at the very point that we were enemies, God sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross, to shed His life-giving blood for His enemy. And by receiving that blood... Through faith, we have been given life. We have been forgiven of our sin. We have been washed. As a believer, what you see is Chris, but living inside of me is God Himself and the person of the Holy Spirit. My DNA may say Chris, but it also says Christian. It says God. He lives inside of me. I'm His. That stuff can't characterize me anymore. I I have new DNA. I've been born again. I'm to reflect the characteristics of my heavenly Father. That, that's what Paul is saying here in, in Titus, the natural reaction. When God sees Chris, He no longer sees sinful Chris. He sees redeemed Chris. When God tests my blood, He doesn't see Chris's blood that is riddled with sin. He sees Chris's blood that has been infused and transplanted with the blood of his son, who, by the way, was a perfect match, not only for Chris Bastian, but a perfect match for the whole world. The only match. The only match. See, Dawn gave up hers for her brother. God gave up his, not only for his children in some sense, but he gave up his son for his enemies. Romans 5, 8 says, While we were yet enemies... God died for us, died for us. The natural reaction, just like we would say to Scott, the natural reaction is thank you. The natural reaction is a life that's that's lived to the fullest in the joy of what he's been giving. That's the good deeds that Paul is talking about here. I mean, think about this. How crazy would it be if Scott claimed any responsibility for what was done for him? How crazy would that be if Scott walked around boasting in any way for his new life? All the praise, all the thank you, all the gratefulness goes to who? The sister. The sister. Sure, he agreed to do it and he did things, but it would be foolish for him to walk around boasting for any part And what was done, it's the same for us. Foolish to go around boasting for anything to do for salvation. God did that. You see it in verse 4, But when the kindness of God our Savior appeared, we didn't get to God, God came to us. And, and, And He didn't come to a friendly people, He came into an enemy territory. He sent His Son into the world that was full of sinners, haters of God. And and that's that's what I want you to see in these first few verses before we dig in to the latter, the results of sin. The results of sin are condemnation. He he gives all that. He says, remind them. See, the result of sin is that we tend to forget. Even the Lord's Supper, He says, do this in remembrance of me. Why? In our sinfulness, we forget. In our sinfulness, we wander. He says, Remind them to be subject rulers, to authorities, to be obedient to every good deed. Here he says, To be malign, no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing consideration for all men. Hey, remind them of the blood that flows through their veins. Remind them that they've been washed. Remind them of the character of their father. He says, They no longer live in sin, they live in the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ, he says. And and Paul, just like any good teacher will do, he gives the bad news first, and he shows the results of sin. And we need to know the results of sin. Sin produces death. Please hear that, Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. The reason why you and I die, the reason why our loved ones die, it's not because of old age, it's it's because of death. It's because of sin. It's because God decreed that the punishment in His grace... The punishment for sin was death. Death. You see that all the way back in Genesis 3. Death. Adam and Eve sinned. God slain an animal and covered them with that animal. A picture. Abraham took Isaac up on that mountain to sacrifice. There was a ram in the thicket. Guess what? Picture Many, many years later, God was, going to put a, God was going to put a perfect ram in a thicket of thorns on his head in the form of a crown, and he would put him on that cross, and he would die for the penalty of our sins. Why? Because sin produces death. Sin separates. Romans 8.1, Paul says, For now there is no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. Here's the deal. If you're not in Christ Jesus, there is condemnation. There is condemnation. Because sin produces death. Sin makes me an adversary of God. The only way that condemnation is avoided is through faith in Jesus Christ. And the reality is this. God's grace changes us. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, hey, you're not that guy anymore. You're not that girl anymore. The blood of Jesus Christ is flowing through you, believer. He's talking to believers here. And he says, remind them. And here's why. There is a constant battle raging for our loyalty. Even though we are saved, there is a constant battle raging for our loyalty. To whom will we give our lives? To whom will we give our allegiance? To whom will we submit ourselves? You go to Romans 6. He says, the one who submits himself to sin is a slave to sin. You submit yourself to God, you're a slave to God. And Satan in the world, he wants to draw us back, and and the world seeks for us to find pleasures and fulfillment in it instead of God. That's the battle. Whom will we find satisfaction? In whom will we find our refuge? Is it in stuff and people, or is it in God? That's, That's what Paul is saying here. Remind them. The flesh wants us to live for the present. The flesh wants us to garnish everything we have for the present. Satan lays traps. You see all that in your handout? All these are efforts to cause us to try to forget what God has done for us. To neglect what God has done for us. To draw us back to where we once were. Paul says, remind them. Remind them. The word remind here in the Greek, it literally means something that they've been taught before. This isn't new. You can go to 1 Corinthians and he says over and over, or do you not know, or do you not know, or do you not know. This isn't new material. This is stuff they ought to know. If you have kids, you know they have to be reminded. And guess what? Those kids have moms and dads who have to be reminded. Reminded. And oftentimes, a Holy Spirit has to remind me that I too have to be reminded as I'm reminding my child and getting frustrated about reminding my child. And Paul says, remind them. And why do we need to be reminded? Why do we need to constantly draw back? Why do we need to stay in God's Word? Why, why do we need to stay tethered? I, I think of the song that says, bind my wandering heart to thee. It's because of this. Because we are still in these sinful bodies, these bodies that are decaying and, and, and rotting away. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians, wasting away, and yet in the inner man is being renewed day by day. There's a battle. The flesh and the spirit, the flesh and the spirit are battling, and Paul is saying, look, that's the result of sin. It's a battle. And look what he says here, starting in in verse, in verse 2. Really, in verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers' authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Listen to this. Because of sin, we seek to rebel against authority over us. You want to see the evidence of sin? It's the fact that we rebel against authority. We don't want authority over us. This ties in with what we saw in 2, verses 9 and 10. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Why? So that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. You show yourself to be born again. You show yourself to be a believer in Christ in how you respect authority. How you are as an employee, how you are as an employer, how you are as a citizen, Bottom line testimony of a Christian is that we are to be subject to those who are in authority over us. We're to be subject. And yet sin wants us to rebel. You can go to Romans 13, you can go to 1 Peter 2, Hebrews 13, for the sake of time. All areas of our lives, Christians are called to be subject to government, to rulers, to pastors. And, And notice what Paul doesn't do. Notice he doesn't qualify the leadership. He doesn't say, be subject to the leaders that you agree with. Be be subject to the leaders that are good. Be subject to the leaders that you like. Be subject to the leaders that repay you. No, no, he says, be subject to leaders. You show your walk with Christ. You show the new blood that flows through your veins, the blood of Jesus Christ, by being subject to those who are in authority over you. Please hear me. The, the, The government that Paul lived under in this day, was terrible, was not favorable to Christians. He was not living in this utopian society where they loved Christians. It was not favorable. And what Paul is telling us practically today is, even though we may not support the government or somebody who's in an office, or you're a boss or whatever, you may not support them, but we must submit to them apart from, you can go to Acts five twenty nine I think it is, apart from them asking you to do something that is contrary to the Word of God, you your job as a believer is to submit to them, is to follow them. The only time believers are to disobey authority is when they're called to do something that is contrary to the Bible by that authority over them. And what this world needs more than anything, what this, we don't need the government to rescue us. We don't need any of this stuff. We need believers to live out and share the gospel through how they submit to authority. We need believers who live out the gospel in all areas of their lives, one of those being how they submit to authority. To verbally give a defense for why we don't badmouth those in leadership, why we don't trash our boss at the water cooler? Why we don't tear others down? Why we don't do any of that? Why don't you do that? Because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. It's a built-in testimony. Because in our sin, we rebel. And Paul is saying here, part of our witness requires that we be subject to rulers and authorities. That's part of our walk as a believer. Does Does it mean that we don't We might question, we might question, just like as a wife, you you can question your husband in in a spirit that wants to submit. We can question in a spirit that says, I want to submit. You're making difficult to submit. But one of the ways that we honor the Lord, one of the ways that we show that we're born again is by submitting to our authorities. But because of sin, we rebel. Not only that, because of sin, we're disobedient. We're disobedient. He says, be subject to rulers to be obedient. Remind them to be obedient. I'm reminding you, believer, to be obedient. We as as Christians ought to be people who obey the law. Obey the law. Not look for ways to get around it, not look for ways to short-circuit it, not ways to skirt it, to obey the law. Paul has made that very clear over and over, that the posture of our heart as believers ought to be one of obedience obedience we want to obey taxes work ethic honest days work how you are in the classroom student how you are at school how you are on the playground how you are in your community obedient obedient it's a it's a witness how we live and how we obey is a witness We don't sit around tearing down leaders. We don't sit around looking for ways to get around it. We simply obey. We give to Caesar what is Caesar's, as Jesus said. Not only only are the effects of sin a rebellion and disobedience, because of sin we slack in good deeds for others and instead live for ourselves. That's what he says, to be ready for every good deed. If If we're honest with ourselves, we're not ready for every good deed. We don't typically steward our lives in order to give our lives away. We're ready to serve ourselves. We're ready to do what we want to do. And Paul says, no, that's sin. That's the effect of sin. He's literally saying, organize your life so you can be effective in your community. Organize your life in such a way that you can be effective in serving your community. Steward your life. Don't cram your calendar so full that you have no room for everybody else. Leave room for serving others. In in Jeremiah 29, 7, God sent disobedient Judah into exile in Babylon. And listen to what he said through Jeremiah. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will have welfare. You know what he says? You're in exile in Babylon. You seek the good of Babylon. Why? Because that'll be good for you. You, you affect that sinful culture where I've placed you, even in, even in disobedience, even in, even in exile. He's saying, Christian, I have you where I have you to be good for that community. Get involved in your community, he's saying. Organize your life where you can get involved with your community. It's not go to work, come home, open the garage door, shut the garage door, and have no contact with the outside world. That's not Christianity. He, he says, for us today, it would be get out of your house, get involved in your neighborhoods, get involved in your communities, get involved in some groups. Maybe it's a PTA, maybe it's volunteering at your kid's school, maybe it's volunteering, we have opportunities at Odessa. He's saying, get involved. Get involved. Look with me at Galatians 6.10 real quick. We won't look at all of these that I had planned just from a time standpoint. Galatians 6.10. So then, while we have opportunity... Let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. We ought to exhaust ourselves serving one another, especially those of the household of the faith. It says the same thing in Titus 2.14, we just saw. Who gave himself, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Why? Because we understand that we were dead. We've been brought to life. That same spirit that Scott had, having been on the verge of death and now has a clean, healthy system, that is the same gratitude that we over here as Christians ought to exhibit every day of our lives. Having been redeemed from the penalty of our sin. And, and, and every, at every turn, hear me, our flesh is going to wage war on that desire to be helpful in our community, to not live for ourselves every day. And Paul is saying this, steward your life in a way that God can give you away. Steward your life in such a way that God can give you away for the good of others. Be prepared, be ready to serve others. Because of sin, that's going to be hard, but he's saying remind them. Remind them. Not only that, because of sin, we tend to build up ourselves by tearing down others he says, to malign no one, to be peaceable, to be gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Here, here's what I know our tendency is. Our tendency in the flesh is to build ourselves up, even if that means tearing down somebody else. And Paul is saying, do not do that, Christian. Do not do that. Do not malign others. Do not use your words to tear people down. Instead, use them to build up. Here's the problem. Words are powerful. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a cute little saying, but it's a lie. I have scars that healed a long time ago from sticks and stones that people threw at me. And I still live today under the wounds of spoken words that were careless towards me. And the worst news is this there's people out there who probably live under the wounds of the the careless words that I spoke to them. And the Word of God says that you're going to give an account. I'm going to give an account for every careless word I've ever spoken. Why? Because they're powerful. You go to James 3 small rudder steers a ship, small bit steers a horse, small spark starts a huge flame. That's words, they're powerful. I bet there's people, even in a small congregation like this, who who are living under the scars and the wounds of words that were spoken to them carelessly, hurtfully. You can't let them go. And at the end of the day, he says, be careful. Why? Because Matthew 12, 33 through 37 says that our words reveal our character. What's down in in the well comes up in the bucket through our words. It's revealing our character. We can act all we want, but our words reveal our character. And Paul says, don't, don't do that, believer. Remind them to let their words build up and not tear down. My question to you today would be this. What does your speech say about you? What does your speech say about you? What does your attitude toward your authority say about you? What, what is your level of obedience? What is your level of involvement in other people's lives say about you what does it say about your response to the life-giving blood of jesus that hopefully flows through your veins what does it say about you and not only that worse than all of that because of sin we tend to become arrogant and forgetful of who we are apart from god's grace He says, remind them, verse 3, remind them, for we once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved. Hey, you know what the world that we talk bad about out there sometimes? We were once one of them. The only difference is by God's grace we were pulled out. It's by God's grace. And we're real quick to forget. We're real quick to become arrogant and to think we did something to warrant God choosing us, that we did something to warrant being saved, and they didn't. No, it's God's grace. And, and that's as foolish as Scott, who I told about in the original, walking around with his chest buffed out like he did something to not have leukemia anymore. No, the praise goes to his sister. The, the praise of our life, the praise of salvation, goes to God. He alone is worthy. That's why Paul says over and over in 1 Corinthians, he says, there, There's no room for boasting. He says, The one who one waters, one, one plants, but you know what? God causes the growth. Then he goes on to say, in case you didn't get the point, no, none of y'all, y'all are anything. It's all God. All God. And, and he's saying, remember who you were without Christ, because that will compel you to live for Christ. That will compel you to live in Christ. And he's destroying self-righteousness. He's destroying arrogance. He, he's tearing them down and saying, look, you are who you are by the grace of God. What we are is of grace. We are stewards of grace, believers. We are stewards of grace. Of grace. No no merit on our own. All credit goes to God. And and the idea of remembrance was, was riddled throughout the Old Testament. Much of what they did in the Old Testament was done in remembrance of what God had done. You go all the way back to the Passover. They celebrated the Passover every year. Why? To remember... Why they weren't in Egypt any longer. To remember how they escaped from Israel bondage. The Lord's Supper is to be done in remembrance that we were saved because Jesus died. And our salvation, Paul is saying, it not only saved us from the penalty of sin, but it saved us from having to live in the power of sin. We've been freed. We don't have to submit ourselves to sin anymore. Greater is in us, John 16, than is in the world. We don't have to submit anymore. And and what Paul is saying here, and and why I shared that story at the beginning, is because the gospel changes everything about our lives. That gentleman's transfusion changed everything about his life. He was dead, and now he's alive. I was dead, and now I'm alive. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. We just studied 1 Corinthians 6. in the theme of remembering, I'm going to help us remember what 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 says. He says, Or do you not know, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor feminine nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Look at verse 11. This is the key. Such were some of you. Paul's reminding them. Such were some of you. But what? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. He says, don't become arrogant. That's that's sin. You were that way. That's past tense. He's saying those things no longer mark our lives, believers. God's grace marks our lives. We've been washed. We've been cleansed. Look at Galatians 5 19 and, and following, real quick. He says in verse 19 Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strifes, jealousy, outbursts of angers, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit, here's the difference, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. He says, now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The flesh is dead. Don't go back there. Don't submit yourself to that anymore. It's dead. There's a contrast, believer. Contrast. So, So that's the bad news Paul starts with the bad news, that's the results of sin. But then he looks at the good news starting in verse 4, the results of grace, the results of God's grace. I love these statements in the Bible. I love the but statements. But, when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, But according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly, He wasn't stingy with it, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement in concerning these things. I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These are good and profitable for men. But when the kindness of our God and Savior and His love for mankind appeared, there's a contrast. For Scott, that I told about earlier, when the when that when his sister's transfused bone marrow blood got in his veins, there was a contrast. Old Scott had been crucified. New Scott New DNA, Scott. New life, believer. What Paul is telling us, and what we must understand, is salvation is not having our sins forgiven by the blood of Jesus, through Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection, and then living as you always had. That's not salvation. It's not it's not simply praying a prayer and then going off and living your life on your own again. No, it's it's just like Daniel saying it's surrender it's allegiance, it's following, it's a new person, it's John 3, being born again. It's totally, it's death to self. Anyone who follows follow me, Jesus said, must deny self, take up his cross daily and follow me. That's salvation. And God's grace was the central theme of Paul's theology throughout. We, we saw it. All through 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians fifteen ten, Paul wrote, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove in vain. Listen why, how he could prove that. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. You see what salvation did to Paul? He labored. He gave his life over to Christ. He followed Him. He's a different person. Pre-Damascus Road, post-Damascus Road, a different person. And that's what Paul says, but when the kindness of our God and Savior appeared in His love for mankind, He saved us, God saved us. God made a way. Sure, are we responsible for believing? Absolutely we're responsible for believing, but God initiated it. There would be nothing to believe in were it not for God initiating salvation. And He's put it in front of us and He simply said, believe. Place your whole life in me. And it's grace. And that's what we see here. God initiated our salvation. Turn with me to chapter 2 of Ephesians just to see an even more detailed uh, explanation of this in in Ephesians 2. For the sake of time, we're not going to read this, but there's a lot of fill-ins there for you, and I'm just going to go through them real quickly so you can kind of get a grip, get a grasp, on what God has done for us in salvation. Number one, He's made us alive. Ephesians 2, 1, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging. You see, Paul says there's a change. God made us alive. He saved us by grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not only that, but God raised us up in Christ. He says, we are His workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. He has seated us with Christ. He's done all this so He can show great mercy and grace through our lives. Paul says in Ephesians 2, in verse 10, he, verse 5, he says, For when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 10, we're his workmanship. We were created for good works. God brought us near when we were far off. Look at verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded. God brought us in. God included us when we were excluded. We were at the out crowd, and He made us in the in crowd. Romans 15 says that He adopted us. He took us in and took responsibility for us. Romans 8.15, rather. I said 15. Romans 8.15. God, God became our peace. Look, look down here. He says in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the divide. All this was done the moment you received grace, the moment you were saved. God provided access to Himself. He says He's allowed us to to be both groups into one. He says He made Himself is our peace who broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He says, Come unto Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The veil when Jesus Christ was crucified was torn. God is saying, You you want access to Me? Come on. You have access. He, he, He made us who were aliens to be fellow citizens. He says in verse verse, uh, 15, he goes on to say, So that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both into one body. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away. I hope you see it's God's grace. And then he finishes by saying, God is building a temple in and through us. He resides in us. He says, verse 19, So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are God's household. We literally are God's household. He resides, He abides in us. John 15. We abide in Him, and yet His Spirit lives in us. It's grace. Paul goes on to say, in order to be saved, we must admit that we are helpless from saving ourselves. Verse 5, Titus 2, 3. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing and regeneration by the Holy Spirit. We were helpless. God did not basic salvation is not God basically saving a good person, it is saving a dead person, a wretched person, an enemy. Don't fall in that trap of thinking you're basically good. We are not. We're enemies. And we will never understand God's grace until we understand fully just how sinful we were, how separated we were. And God saved His enemies. And salvation is a radical intervention. It is a radical intervention that required the infinite holy God to send a perfect substitute. It is a salvation is a radical thing. Just like Scott Melby's curing from leukemia was a radical thing. It wasn't take a couple pills and call me in the morning. It was a radical treatment. Salvation is a radical thing. And verse 5 is very clear. It had nothing to do with us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. It's mercy. You see that in Romans 4. You see that in 2 Timothy 1. We won't go there. Salvation is a radical thing. We were helpless. We were helpless. But God sent His Son. Not only that, salvation is entirely built upon the mercy of God, but according to His mercy. The the kindness of our God and Savior, He put His Son as a substitute for sinful humanity And he was the substitute for our sins. He substituted his son where we deserve to die. His wrath that he poured out on Jesus Christ was due you and I. And instead of me, he took me out of the seat and he put his son and he poured all the wrath due sin on his son. And you know what? Then he gives me the crown. And he offers you the crown. That's mercy. 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 You, you, can, you can look at, 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 in Luke 6, he commands Jesus commands us to love our enemies. Why? Because that's what Jesus Christ did. That's what God did. That's the DNA of our Father, is to love those who are unlovable, to love those who can't love back. And He says, Christian, you go do likewise, and in doing so, you show off the character of your Heavenly Father. Show it off. He's our substitute. He goes on in that passage to say that God Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. God does not require anything of us that He does not first do toward us. We are to show off His character. We are show, just like Scott, if you tested His blood, there's new DNA. The DNA of our Father is His character that we are to live out through obedience to this Word. That's why He calls us to obedience. That's why He calls us to what He calls It's His DNA. It's His character. Flowing through us. It's showing the world exactly what we've been recipients of first. We're there now doing it to others. That's Christianity. It's doing to others what we've had done to us. And that word love there in verse 4, but the kindness of God and His love for mankind, that Greek word is is philanthropia. We get, our, we get our English word, obviously, th- philanthropy. Usually you see agape, but this is a different word. And, and this is the only time that this word is used of God in the New Testament. And, and it, what he's saying is, is that God sent His Son into the world that was not lovable, and it, it, it's, it points to the fact that God was the one that was loving. It was philanthropy. It was charity. It wasn't warranted. You didn't deserve it. He was loving sinful rebellious. We were rebellion. It's philanthropy. It's charity. It's mercy. God saw us helpless in in our sinful state, and He sent His Son. And He goes all the way back to Genesis 3. This was His plan. Willingness to sacrifice His Son on our behalf if we sinned. Paul goes on to say that, how is it accomplished? Salvation is accomplished through the washing of regeneration, he says, whom he poured out on us. He says, by the washing of regeneration in verse 4. Regeneration is, is referring to the new birth, new birth, it's being born again. It's, it's, it's Nicodemus in John 3. It's being born again. You think about being born again, new DNA, new character. We represent the character of our Heavenly Father. That's Christianity. James 1.18 says, In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. God did this. It's God's doing. Regeneration also refers to the removal of filth. Removal of filth. Our sin, we were filthy. Filthy. Look at Ezekiel. I will show us this one, just to see this. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Look at this. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That is exactly fulfilled in what Paul is saying here now. We've been washed. As Christians, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. He's causing us to walk in His ways. He's causing us to have these good deeds. God said long ago what He was going to do, and He did it in Jesus Christ. not Not only were we washed, but we were renewed by the Holy Spirit. We were renewed by the Holy Spirit. In a real sense, we had expired. We were dead. We were renewed. New man. You see it in Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, that we are new creatures. And He creates the new nature by the power of the Spirit, but we must walk in the Spirit, and that's where the Word of God comes in. We we walk, we present ourselves to God, we follow His ways, we get filled up with the Word, and therefore we live out the Word, His character. He guides, He directs, He comforts all the Holy Spirit. He has literally put Himself in us that we would walk in His ways as we saw in Ezekiel. The question is, do we experience this? Do we avail ourselves to what God has done? Do we stay in His Word? Do we study His Word? Do we read His Word? Do we we pray that God would let us live out His Word? Do we look for opportunities to live out His Word? The problem is not with God. The problem is our response to God. It's how we respond to His grace. It's not with grace. It's with our response to grace. Do 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 you focus too much on the things of the world? Do you focus too much on self? Do you know much of this word? All those are questions that affect the control of the Spirit in our lives. How much the Spirit controls us. Paul goes on to say salvation is accomplished not only through washing and renewing, but through being justified. He says so that being justified by his grace we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The word justified means to literally be declared righteous. We are not righteous, and yet God declares us righteous. It is a very much a legal term. God looks upon us and he sees guilt except for the fact that that guilty verdict was paid, the penalty of that guilty verdict was paid by His Son. God can justifiably and and rightly justify us. Why? Because the penalty for our sin was not just washed away, it wasn't just simply set aside, it was paid by His Son. And God can now look at us and say, you're redeemed, you're justified, you're free. The penalty of our sin was paid for by Christ. God can be a a holy, just judge and declare us to be righteous. Why? Because our justification lies in His Son. Just like that chimerism test, when they looked at Scott, they don't see Scott anymore, they see Don's blood. When God looks at a believer, He doesn't see Chris Basham anymore, He sees His Son's blood. And he's satisfied with that. And his son was a perfect ten. Justification I said, is a legal term. It literally means legally acquitted. You've legally been acquitted. But not only that, he says, if it doesn't stop there, he says, salvation guarantees our future. He says that we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What this means is that everything that is Christ is ours. We're heirs. The Bible says we're co-heirs. And hear me, there is more to salvation and its blessings than what this life has to offer. The blessings of salvation go way beyond what you experience here. It's the promise that in spite of what you experience here, you're God's. He has you. He loves you. The word hope there, it literally means the best is yet to come. That's hope. It's laid up in heaven. It's in God's hands. There's no uncertainty about it. It's absolutely certain. You can go to Hebrews 11.1. 1. There is certainty with our hope. And the result of all of this, the result of having an unquenching hope, an immovable hope, of having the inheritance that won't fade, of having been washed, regenerated, having the grace of God poured out on us, the result of that, Paul says in verse 8, this is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These are good and profitable for men. God's grace is what propels us into good works. It's having a second lease on life. It's having been brought back from the dead. It propels us to good works. Our lives, our works, are to be an overflow of God's grace in us. It's literally God's grace pouring out of us. Rich passage here. There's a lot there. We could have have parked days on any one of these verses. The application, Paul says, is this. Be confident. Believer, you can have the utmost confidence in what Christ has done. You can live in the face of opposition with the utmost confidence. He says, be bold. Be sold out to Christ. Speak confidently. Be careful to engage in good deeds. Steward your life so that you live out the character of the the God that is in you. That you live out the blood, the new DNA that flows through your veins in the person of the Holy Spirit, that you live that out. That's the new life, Paul says. That's God's grace. Death replaced by life. Sin replaced by righteousness. Lostness replaced by hope. A wasted life replaced by a purposed life. I I hope you see that. I hope that that is evident in your life. I hope that you're confident in what God has done. I hope you can say with confidence as Candice and Ava can that God has saved you. If you can't, I pray today that you, if we're done here, I'm going to wait down front. I pray that you'd come down and grab me. If you've never been baptized, come down, let's talk. If you want to join this church, whatever it is, for the sake of time, I'm going to let you go to small groups and we'll hang out here one-on-one apart from God's grace, as much as I don't want to say it, there is nothing left but condemnation. Rightly, just, deserved condemnation because of our sin. But you can have that condemnation exchanged for reconciliation, for justification, for forgiveness. But it only comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. It only comes through applying that blood in faith to your life.